Hello, I'm Martin Upton from Reopen University. I'm here with my colleagues John Crowlow and Alan Shipman, and today we're talking about investment bubbles. Um, first of all, Alan, can you define for me what a bubble is? It isn't easy. We normally know them after they've occurred, risen and burst, but not before. Essentially, a bubble occurs when the price of an asset, um, very often prices on the equity market, rise substantially above the level that one could ascribe to their fundamental or intrinsic valuation. Knowing what the intrinsic value is, is always difficult. One can rationalize that the price of a share should be the present discounted value of the future profit that it's going to generate for shareholders. But knowing what that is, is always speculative. And there can be reasons why sometimes a share price gets revised upwards quite substantially on the basis of new information. People would tend to say a bubble is occurring when valuation is getting very high across the board and investors seem to be piling into a market largely because other investors have already done so, especially if those investors are borrowing heavily to increase the amount of their investment. And the fear is that prices will go too high once they are detached from fundamentals. People will actually start trading on the upward momentum and reinforce that momentum. And having gone too high, they come down very, very steeply and wipe out those who have borrowed in order to get into the market and haven't gone out in time. I find it very hard to distinguish between a, a bubble and a sharp price movement in an asset of whatever type for good fundamental reasons. I'm looking at today's FT and I'm seeing that in the last year, iron ore has gone up in price by 170%. Um, nickel by 137%, copper by 90%, and aluminium by a meagre 60%. So for all those four commodities, are those four commodity bubbles? Some people would argue that because they would say, well, the price of those commodities should be determined by global supply and demand. And in fact, some of the producers of those commodities try to use rising and falling stocks to regulate the price and to stop it rising or falling very rapidly. So if it is being chased upward suddenly, that could be because some people are speculating in it, building up stocks in it, following the price up and actually creating more upward momentum for the price. And it is detached from the fundamentals. Some would argue that and others would say, in fact, the world economy is recovering very rapidly and there is a real growth in demand. And that's the reason for the price increase. This is what makes it so difficult to determine whether rapidly rising asset prices are a bubble phenomenon or a real phenomenon. And with commodities, it's particularly difficult because the stocks are not visible and people don't know whether it's the holding certain supplies off the market that is causing the price increase or whether they genuinely are passing through the market and being bought and used up in production. We've talked about bubbles in the context of stock market and the context of commodities, but there's one potentially other bubble which is closer to home, the UK housing market. Now, we saw prices in the housing market in the UK rocket between 1995 and then it all came to a bit of a sort of sudden end in 2007, although actually in the last year house prices have recovered again. So John Krill, do you think that housing in the UK, that's another bubble? 
It's very hard to say. This comes back very much to what Alan was saying about the fundamental value of an asset and the difficulty in determining what that is. For many years, with house prices rising, there's been an argument that, well, in the UK, land is scarce. We are seeing more households because more people are choosing to live alone. Families are divorcing. And, and so there's demand, excess demand for housing. And that seemed to be a rational reason for house prices to rise. But equally, you can say, well, the rise has been very rapid. If you plot it on a chart, you know, that it's been a very steep rise in, in the last few years. And of course, we've seen a fall back. And if you look at um, the affordability of housing, especially for first-time buyers, the multiple of earnings now is around four and a half, five times earnings to, to buy a first property, whereas the long-term trend has been about two and a half. So on that basis, you could say, well, yes, housing still looks very overpriced and maybe this is a bubble. But it really does show that the great difficulty in recognising a bubble Housing is especially sensitive in economies like Britain with a very high proportion of home ownership. We've seen the government desperate to stop house prices falling, especially when people have been borrowing on mortgages with a high loan-to-value ratio, because the price fall can push households into negative equity and actually give serious financial difficulties to them if they have to sell the property at that point. So I think we've seen government policy adjusted in the form of the, the very low interest rate to rescue the housing market before it can decline significantly. And that raises a question which I think a lot of the people arguing for the continuation of bubbles would point to, which is when the government holds interest rates down for a long time or when an independent central bank like the Bank of England holds interest rates near to zero for a long time, that does put a lot of credit growth into the system. And that credit is going to generate spending on some commodity somewhere. So something will bubble up in those conditions. If it's not housing next, it might be emerging markets, it might be green technology, something else quite possibly will be going through a bubble now because of the supply of cheap credit. Okay, you can apply the term bubble then to various asset classes uh, and to various different markets. But to my mind, a pure bubble really relates to something which is new, a new asset, a new device, a new market, uh, where there's no track history of financial performance. So investors and other participants don't know how to value the companies engaged in production of the new thing. Do you think that's fair? Yes, I, th I think there is something in that. Um, we've seen it with the dot-com bubble. You see it with uh, biotech companies say there's a lot of excitement about what these companies might produce in the future, what, what profits they might produce for investors. But because there's no track record and because they're in a development phase, the future earnings are projected, forecast, guessed, if you like. And <laughs> absolutely. And so, you know, w what is the value of this company that's, that's got great future prospects but isn't actually producing today? And interestingly, sometimes the market can be right about the innovation, but not necessarily right about the companies. So an example was the uh, railway mania in the 1840s, when uh, it was correctly identified that railways would revolutionise the economy. But in fact, it wasn't really the, the shareholders of railway companies who saw that return. 
Yeah. When it comes to bubbles, we tend to focus on, on the losers, the people who invest in companies and end up with pennies if they're lucky. But uh, there is the other side to the notion of a bubble, and that they, these bubbles are often very, very useful, aren't they? Yes. Um, governments do worry a lot, and uh, ordinary citizens worry a lot, that we might actually not invest enough and not grow the economy fast enough because of that low rate of investment. Bubbles, because they make financial capital available cheaply, they reduce companies' costs of capital, can actually boost company investment in a way which is publicly beneficial, even if it's not privately beneficial to the shareholders and creditors. We certainly saw that with the railway boom in the 1840s. Most of Britain's railways were built at that time. Very few have been built since. So we today should be enormously grateful to those who mismanaged their fortune by investing in that 1840s railway bubble. We're still getting the public benefits from it. The same could well be happening today with green technology, which has been absorbing a very large amount of venture capital and has been tipped by some to be the next bubble. It could well be that a lot of private investors in green technology will not get benefits, but the more solar cells we install, the more wind farms are set up, the better that's going to be for the public in general and the economy in general. So to a certain extent, tricking investors through a bubble can have good lasting benefits for the community. I just wonder if bubbles also exemplify the issues to do with the different degrees to which people hold information about investments. Um, we talk about the markets being efficient, and you can't buck the markets. But when it comes to understanding how a stock or an asset or a commodity might move in price, well, some people are on the inside, they know, uh, and have a pretty good idea about the valuation of a particular asset, and some are hovering on the outside, and they're more vulnerable. Yes, though acting rationally as an investor isn't just about getting that intrinsic value right. It's also about guessing what other investors are doing, about how other investors are valuing the company. So you can have what you could call a rational bubble where you know something is overpriced, but because you think that other investors will carry on investing, the price will still go up. And so it's still rational for you to invest now as long as you pull out in time. So it's not necessarily um, an indication of irrational behavior or necessarily an inefficient market. But what we've often seen is the professional investors in the end doing better than the small private investors. They are the ones who manage to stay in until very late but still get out in time. And it's the more ordinary people in the street who've gone into the market when it's already a long way up and who have stayed in it too long who tend to suffer the sudden loss of capital when the bubble bursts. So uh, the same old story basically the people on the, on the inside in the know will tend to get out in time and the poor, hapless individual investor is going to be the one that's going to end up making losses. Quite possibly. And it is because the professionals have the information and have their ear to the market much more than the ordinary investor in their front room is likely to do. Okay. Well, life would be less exciting without bubbles. And we have seen they do have desirable consequences. And we don't know where the next one will come. From the Open University... For more information, go to www.open.ac.uk forward slash use.